Welcome to Center Church. My name is Josh Miller. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're a guest with us, welcome. We're really, really thrilled that you're here. If you're back for maybe the, the second time since grand opening, welcome. We're, we're glad to have you back. If you're a parent in town for Parents Weekend, welcome. We're glad to have you guys. Uh, man, yesterday was an incredible day. If you're here uh, at the facility, we had our Fall Fest. Big round of applause for the Fall Fest, I think, is in order. <clears throat> Um, we've got some pictures. It was an incredible day. Pastor Justin's actually going down the slide in this picture. You can see him. Uh, man, it was, it was a beautiful day. We had an incredible time. Tons and tons of people came out um, from the community. I don't think it could have gone um, any better. And if you were there, you know, it was just an incredible day to be together with our church family and to man, welcome people from the community to come man, and enjoy time together. And so it was a big win. Um, but I wanted to answer the question briefly, like, why do that? Because it does take a lot of effort and it takes energy and volunteers and it costs some money and like all of that, all of that costs time and resources. So why bother hosting something yesterday like Fall Fest? Well, the answer is that Jesus's vision of discipleship involved dinner parties and wedding receptions. Okay, so I told you last week, like his vision of discipleship in, included parties. And so what yesterday was, was it was a giant fall party hosted by Center Church. Okay, and it, it, it is really in a lot of ways practice for heaven. Because if you read the book of Revelation, spoiler alert, here's how heaven starts. One giant, incredible wedding reception. That's how it starts. And so, man, if you don't like parties, you're going to struggle in heaven, okay? Like, like if you're like too stodgy for parties, you're not going to like it there, right? And so every time we throw a big party like Fall Fest, man, we are inviting our community to come and engage with the church and to kind of come and see. And we're also practicing for heaven. And so if you're out there, I know you had a great time. Man, just big shout out to all of our, our volunteers that serve, to everybody, man, who invested and who gave and who invited to make it, man, an incredible day. It was a lot of fun. I think my kids drank 17 cups of hot chocolate. Uh, and then I put them in the van and was like, see you when you get home, you know, like the whole thing. So, you know, pray for my wife. Um, anyway, so man, let, let's just stop. Let's pray. Thank God that he is a God of parties. And then we'll jump into John chapter three, okay? Lord God, I thank you so much that you are a God of abundance, uh, that in your presence, there is fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore, that you don't call us away from joy, but you call us to true joy. And God, I pray in my heart, I pray in our church's heart that we would grasp that, that we would know when you call us away from sin and away from the world, you're not calling us away from good. You're calling us to better. And Lord, I pray that, that would be deeply embedded in the DNA of our church. And I pray as people come and engage with our church, that they would feel that. And Lord, as we look at your word in John chapter three, would you open our eyes? Would you remove obstructions from our ears that we might see and we might hear what you have for us today? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, you can open it up to John chapter 3, starting in verse 1, which is what Pastor Justin read for us. Um, we're in week 3 of a series that we're calling Come and See. And, and here's the big idea of the series, uh, that we all have an image of Jesus in our minds that is shaped to some degree by the culture that we've been reared in, okay? So I told you last week that, you know, a lot of my image of Jesus was that he was a 6'2 European with blonde hair, right? Which, which is simply not accurate of a first century Middle Eastern Jew. And, and so the question that we've asked is, man, if we all have an image, a cultural image of Jesus, Jesus, the question is, what is the real Jesus actually like? Okay, what is Jesus actually like? And so that's what we're doing in the Gospel of John. We're looking at nine different interactions that Jesus has in John so that we might get to know Jesus better. And, and John's desire is that we might come to know Jesus, that we would believe in Jesus, and as a result, we would be saved by Jesus. Okay, and so that is what we are driving at in this entire series. And this week, we're looking at a conversation that Jesus had with a man named Nicodemus. Okay, Nicodemus was a very upstanding, impressive, religious man, and we're going to see how Jesus interacts with him. And in this conversation, Jesus introduces a very important phrase, a phrase that is very, very important to the message of Christianity, and that phrase is born again. Okay, that phrase is born again. Born again communicates the radical nature of the Christian faith. 
You see, following Jesus isn't primarily about adopting new rituals and rhythms. It's about being made entirely new. And in this text, Jesus says quite boldly that everyone who wants to enter the kingdom of God must be born again. That everyone who wants to enter the kingdom of God must be born again. So if you're here and you've ever wondered, how do I know I'm going to heaven? Or what does it mean to become a Christian? Well, the answer is in our text today. We're going to learn. But being born again has implications beyond conversion. It has implications beyond becoming a Christian because if we really grasp this particular doctrine, it will produce humility, gratitude, passionate worship, and perspective in the midst of suffering. So this phrase, born again, understanding what it means and what it means in our lives is is really, really important and practical. It's a significant phrase, but it's also a significantly misunderstood phrase. You see, when some people hear the phrase born again, what they think about is getting really emotional, okay? They think of a very, very emotional moment at church, at camp, or at a conference. And the truth is you can be emotional when you're born again, but that is not the essence of what it means to be born again. Other people, when they hear that phrase, associate it with a particular political or social agenda. Now, being born again will have implications for how you view the world, but that is not the essence of it either. You see, being born again isn't primarily about emotions or politics, but this story today illustrates what it is about. So we're going to look at this conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus to learn today what does it mean to be born again. Let's start in verse 1. Now, there is a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So last week, we talked about Jesus being at a wedding in Cana of Galilee, which was in the north. Well, sometime after that wedding, Jesus traveled down to the capital city of Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, okay? It was kind of like the Jewish Thanksgiving. So there are a lot of people there. And while he was in Jerusalem, Jesus performed a number of signs, miraculous signs that caused quite a stir in the city. And they got the attention of this man named Nicodemus. Now, who is Nicodemus? Well, Nicodemus is a pretty important person. So he's one of the only people in the entire Bible that's introduced three different ways. Did you notice that? He's introduced by his name, he's introduced by his party, and he's introduced by his position. So it's Nicodemus of the Pharisees, a ruler of the Jews. He's introduced that many ways because he's an important person. He reminds me of my old college president. He was a very impressive human being. He was an all-American running back at Air Force. He was a decorated fighter pilot. He was a Rhodes Scholar, and he graduated from the Harvard Business School. It took 20 minutes to introduce the man. It was just ridiculous, okay? Well, that's kind of who Nicodemus is. He is a very, very important person. He was a Pharisee, which meant he lived according to the strictest religious code. He was a ruler, which meant he had social and political power, and he was very, very intelligent. He studied under the greatest teachers of of his generation, and he was known as an erudite teacher all across Israel. Jesus even refers to him as the teacher of Israel. That is how intelligent Nicodemus was. If ever there was a man who did not need to be born again, it was Nicodemus. And yet in our passage, Jesus looks at him and says directly, you must be born again if you want to enter the kingdom of God. Now we're told that Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. And that has both practical and spiritual significance. So practically, Nicodemus probably didn't want to be publicly associated with Jesus yet. 
You have to understand that, Nick, that Jesus had no official religious credentials. He didn't study under any particular rabbi. He wasn't kind of known in the circles of power. So he made a big splash in Jerusalem, but it wasn't sort of, it wasn't appropriate yet for someone as uh, statured as Nicodemus to be seen with him publicly. So he, he goes to him at night to have this conversation. So that's the practical significance. But on a spiritual level, John is always using night and day, darkness and light to communicate spiritual truth. So here's what John is saying. Nicodemus came to Jesus under cover of night and was himself in spiritual darkness. That's kind of what John is going to help us see. So he comes to him at night, but he doesn't, he's not antagonistic towards Jesus. I mean, he seems to like him. He refers to him as rabbi, which was a, a title of honor. He says, rabbi, we know, referring to kind of him and his cronies, like we know that you're a teacher come from God. Here's what Nicodemus believed about Jesus. This might be what you think about Jesus today. He thought Jesus was a very insightful religious teacher. He thought, man, here's a man who understands the things of God. I might even be able to learn something from him. Let me go have a dialogue with this new teacher, this upstart teacher from Galilee. Verse 3, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, truly, truly is a very emphatic way to start a statement. So throughout the Gospels, when Jesus introduces a statement by saying truly, truly, or verily, verily, if you have that in your translation, he's about to teach something that is important yet counterintuitive. Important yet counterintuitive. And so he's basically saying, listen up, give me your eyes, lock in with me for a second. It's like when I talk to my kids sometimes. I'm like, hey, right here, right here. I need him right here, right? Uh, this is what I need, right? So Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, this is going to be hard for you to grasp, so I need you to really focus and then with the authority of the Son of God, he says, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. To see the kingdom of God is synonymous with entering the kingdom of God. So Jesus is talking about going to heaven, okay? That's what he's talking about. And he says, unless you were born again, you are not going to go to heaven, okay? So to translate it, if you've been born again, you will go to heaven. If you have not been born again, you will not. Now, that was a very challenging thing for Jesus to say to Nicodemus, because you have to understand, as a Jew, Nicodemus believed he was automatically an inheritor of the kingdom of God. I am, I am one of God's people, okay? I, I, I've been raised in the traditions of God's people. I'm a Pharisee. I've, I've kept all the religious stipulations. I am I'm the strictest and, and the best behaved of everyone of the Jews. Now, in his mind, it made sense for maybe a Samaritan or a Gentile to be born again, but certainly not a Jew. This is a very challenging thing that Jesus said to Nicodemus. And you're going to see in this text that Nicodemus, he's always doing things like marveling or saying, how can this be? I mean, this was very, very shocking. It was very, very challenging for him to hear. It was challenging then, and, and it's challenging for us to hear today. Now, why is it challenging for us to hear today? Well, there's a lot of reasons. Number one, it's all-encompassing. It all, it's an all-encompassing statement. Jesus says, you will not go to heaven unless you were born again. He doesn't give any exceptions or any stipulations. If you have a PhD, you need to be born again. If you have a GED, you need to be born again. The barista who serves you coffee, the woman who swipes you in at the YMCA, the nurse who's precepting with you, your very kind Mormon neighbors, your friend from spin class. Every single person needs to be born again if they want to see the kingdom of God. That's challenging. It's also challenging because it's very binary. Jesus said, you're either born again or you are not born again. There's no middle ground. There's no half born again. It's like you're either in or you're out. And our cultural moment has a really, really hard time with black and white statements about spiritual reality. But Jesus isn't backing off from it. He's saying, hey, you're either in or you're out. 
And finally, it's challenging because it says, I'm not okay the way that I am. It says, I'm not okay the way that I am. If I want to go to heaven, Josh needs to be fundamentally changed. I need to be reborn from above. And so do you. That's challenging. It was challenging to Nicodemus then. It is challenging to us today. But that is what Jesus Christ, through the scriptures, is saying to us. And if we're going to grasp biblical Christianity, we have got to understand this doctrine. You see, Christianity is what I would say is good news, bad news, good news. Okay, good news, bad news, good news. Good news, God made you in his image and desires to have a relationship with you. That's good news. Bad news, you and I are sinful and we are separated from him by nature and choice. That's the bad news. Good news, Jesus Christ came so that we could be born again. Good news, bad news, good news. But you guys, if we don't understand the depth of the problem, we won't understand the depth of the solution. So if, if we don't understand that we need to be born again, then when Jesus comes and says you need to be born again, it seems way over the top and really extreme. Think of it as the difference between blood thinners and a heart transplant. Okay, if you have high cholesterol, you go to the doctor, they, they might, I'm not a doctor, so forgive me if this is totally inaccurate. Um, <laughs> we've got like 70,000 nurses in our church, so they're all like, that's not true, Josh. Um, bear with me. All right, imagine you went to the doctor and the doctor said, hey, you've got high cholesterol. The doctor might prescribe you blood thinners, right? And that would be appropriate. The blood thinners kind of keep everything moving and they, and they keep you healthy. But if, if you go to the doctor, they say, hey, your heart is failing, like no amount of blood thinners is going to solve that problem, right? You need something much more dramatic. You need a transplant. You need a new heart. We see what Jesus is saying and what it's very hard for us to accept is, guys, you don't just need spiritual blood thinners. You don't just need to like kind of reform some practices and, and kind of, you know, keep your promises and be a little bit better. He's like, no, 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 you need a new heart. No amount of blood thinners is going to, is going to replace your Heart, that is what Jesus is saying. That's challenging, but it's basic Christian doctrine. And when you grasp that doctrine, it starts to change your life in the most amazing ways. And, and here's what I mean. If I need to reform my behavior, I'm going to look for a guru or a self-help book. But if I need a new heart, I'm going to look for a savior. If I need to reform my behavior, then it's all about me and how disciplined I am and how good I can be. But if I need to be fundamentally changed by a divine savior, then now it's all about God's grace and God's glory and God's power. Do you see how different that is? And it's freeing because now it's not like, how good can Josh be? How good can you be? It's like, man, how good is God in my life? Um, you know what it also does? It, it will make me a profoundly humble person, a profoundly humble person because I didn't fix my heart through spiritual diet and exercise. I received an entirely new heart by sheer grace. You might be here and you might really dislike the phrase born again because you associate it with people who are judgmental, condemning, and proud. Hear me, the problem with those people isn't that they're too born again. The problem is that they're not born again enough. Because if you truly understand this, if you are truly born again, you, you will become humble, gracious, and hopeful towards others. How in the world could you condemn someone else with a broken heart that's not functioning properly, when you yourself would be in the exact same condition except for the incredible grace of God. So the problem isn't that those people are too born again. It's not they're not born again. They might not be born again at all. Or if they are, they just haven't, they haven't really understood or worked that doctrine in at the soul level. Beyond that, this doctrine, when you understand it, will fundamentally change how you raise your kids. 
It will fundamentally change how you raise your kids. Because if what my children need most is new hearts, then I'm going to be on my face asking God to do that in their life every single day. And I'm going to be pointing them to the grace of Jesus Christ. I'm going to be making use of all the, the means of grace that God gives me to point them to Jesus. Right? If what my kids need first and most is to be born again, man, that's going to shape how I parent. Okay, so it has all these massive implications. It is challenging, but it has so many implications for our lives. So Jesus says, unless you're born again, you won't enter the kingdom. And Nicodemus is very confused. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? You see, Nicodemus simply could not accept what Jesus said. It was, it was too paradigm shifting for him. He said, how can this be? And the truth is, some people only want to embrace Jesus if he affirms everything they already believe. I mean, that was Nicodemus. He's like, I, this is totally different than what, than what I believe, and so I, don't, I can't process this. But if Jesus is truly God in the flesh, think with me for a second. If Jesus is truly God in the flesh, then we should expect him to blow our minds and challenge our understanding, shouldn't we? If Jesus is God, he shouldn't agree with me all the time because I changed my mind. I, a lot, someone just said. I love that. Yeah, like, I, like one day I'm in a good mood, the next day I'm in a bad mood. You don't want God like me, okay? And I don't think you want God like you, but the implication of that is that if God is different than us, then it would, make it, it would make total sense that he would challenge us and push on us, especially in the cultural moment that we're in. So Nicodemus, he's like, I don't understand this. How could this possibly be true? Verse 5, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So Jesus used that phrase again, truly, truly, because Nicodemus isn't getting it, but he's doubling down. He's like, Nicodemus is really important. You've got to understand this. And then he said, unless you are born of water and the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. A born of water refers to natural birth. Okay, that's how the Jews referred to natural birth. I won't get into the details why. Use your imagination. Okay, that is how they refer to natural birth, born of water. Um, and, and so born of water uh, correlates to born of the flesh in the next verse. You see how it kind of does that parallel-wise? This does not refer to baptism, okay? Sometimes people think that this refers to baptism and, and somehow baptism saves you, and it just doesn't. That's not what the Bible teaches. Um, baptism is very, very important, but baptism is an outward symbol of the inward transformation that God has worked in your heart. You see, in this verse, Jesus is referring to the distinction between being born naturally of water or of the flesh and being born of the spirit from above, okay? That's the distinction that he's drawing. And one of the practical implications of what Jesus is teaching is that you cannot be born as a Christian. You must be born again as a Christian, okay? What Jesus is saying very clearly is, look, there is a natural birth and then there's a spiritual birth and they are two separate events. They're two separate things. There's no one who has always been a Christian. It's just simply not a biblical category. Now, you, you may have grown up with, with wonderful Christian parents. You may have grown up in the church since the nursery, right? You, you may have gone to Christian school. You maybe don't remember a time in your life that you didn't believe in God, right? Praise, praise the Lord for all of that grace in your life, but that is different than being born again. There must be a moment or a season in your life that you personally repent and surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, Right? You, you cannot be born as a Christian. You must be born again as a Christian. And now that can be dramatic in a moment. Right? It could, it could be like at camp when I was 12 years old. 
Or it can be a season of your life where you say, man, my, my freshman year of college, I really wrestled with these things. And for the first time, I really applied them personally and I surrendered to Christ as my savior, right? It doesn't have to look one particular way, but what Jesus is saying is there has to be a moment, man, when you give your life to him. Okay, in verse eight, Jesus moves away from the illustration of birth and he uses the illustration of wind, man, to further explain what being born again is like. He's trying to help Nicodemus and us out. He's like, all right, let me give you a bunch of different illustrations. Verse eight. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Jesus says, hey, look, you can't control the wind, and you can't see the wind, but you can't deny the effects of the wind. Okay? You can't control the wind, and you can't see the wind, but you can't de deny the effects of the wind. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You can't always understand exactly how it happens. You can't always explain, well, it was A to B to C to D in my life or in someone else's life. It doesn't always happen in the same way, right? Some people are born again after a season of great success because they realize, man, I've gotten all that I ever wanted in life and it's not enough. Other people are born again after a season of great failure. They, they hit rock bottom and they find that at the bottom, he's the rock, okay? Like it, 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 it's different for every single person. It's, there's no kind of one way that it happens. And yet, you know that it's happened because you can see the effects, in the same way that when the wind blows, you can't see the wind, but you can see the effects, Jesus is saying, so it is with everyone who is born again. So what are some of the effects of being born again? Maybe you're here and you're wondering, Josh, how do I know if I've been born again? Well, it, a good question is to, is to look for some of the effects. So what are some of the effects that the scriptures give us? Well, one of them is that you have a new desire for God. You have a new desire for God. You want to know him more deeply. All of a sudden, you're leaning in. You're leaning into church. You're leaning into the scriptures. You're leaning into community. You just have this desire to know him more. Things that didn't, weren't really on your mind before, you weren't really thinking about them, all of a sudden, man, they're on your mind a lot. And a second effect is that you start to, man, love and crave God's word, the scriptures. You, you want to understand them more. You want to read them more. I, I heard a story of a pastor friend of mine who came to faith in Christ in Pittsburgh, and somebody gave him a little New Testament, and it said New Testament in Psalms. He thought it said New Testament in Palms because he didn't know how to pronounce the word. And he was like, I read the entire thing through in a month, right? He, he, just, he just had this desire to read the word of God. And that is the story of some of you. I, I've talked to some of you who've said, I was not a reader until I became a Christian. <laughs> and now I'm a reader. I love reading the word of God. So that's a, second, that's a second effect. A third effect is that you start to feel conviction of sin. You start to feel conviction of sin. So attitudes and behaviors that didn't bother you before, all of a sudden you're bothered by I was talking to one of our members just this week. It was the sweetest conversation. He's a, a newer believer. He came to faith in Christ here last year. And we were talking on the phone. And um, he was a, a little discouraged because he was like, Josh, I'm just feeling all this conviction over all these behaviors. And I was like, man, be encouraged, brother. That's the spirit of God. Like, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing that the spirit of God is like, all right, now let's deal, deal with this. And now let's deal with this. Let's get that cleaned out. Let's get you transformed. So that's a third effect. And then a fourth effect is you just want to become more like Jesus. Like you just have a desire to become more Christ-like. You look at the cross, you look at your Savior and say, I want to be like him. I want to be like him as a husband. I want to I be like him as a father. I want to be like him as an employer. I want to be like him as a student. I just want to become more like Christ. As Peter said in 2 Peter, I want to grow in, my, in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are other effects uh, of, of being born again that I could list, but th those are a, a number of them. And so if you're here and you're wondering, Josh, this is really important. I don't know if I've been born again. 
I don't, I don't have a moment where I got really emotional, you know, like Billy Graham never signed my Bible, you know, like all these different things. Like, I don't know. I, I, would, I would say it's a good idea to look back at your life, look at your life now and say, man, do I see some of those effects in my life? Maybe you can't see the wind, but can you feel the wind? Do you see those effects in your life today? You know, uh, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul talks about it this way, one of the, the effects of the new birth. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ that is born again, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The new birth is often so dramatic that when you think of yourself before Christ, your BC days, if you will, uh, your BC days, it feels like you're thinking about a different person. Like it feels like I've got people are nodding their heads right now. Like you, you feel like you're like, was that me? Is that the same person? Right? Because you've been so radically changed by the gospel. Um, I heard a great illustration of this from church history. So uh, St. Augustine was an African church leader uh, who lived during the 300s, and he made a profound contribution to the Christian faith. But before becoming a Christian, he was self-admittedly a sex addict. Right? He's very, very promiscuous. He slept with many, many prostitutes. Well, um, then he came to Christ. He was born again, and his life radically changed. Well, years later, he saw one of the prostitutes that he had slept with. And, um, and he interacted with her cordially. Man, he was very kind, but there was no invitation. There was, there was no desire, none of that. And then he walked away. Well, the woman was so surprised that she assumed he, he must have forgotten who I am. And so she yells out, Augustine, it's me. To which Augustine responded, yes, but it is no longer me. Right? Isn't that a powerful picture of what it's like to be born again? It doesn't mean that all of a sudden you never sin anymore. It doesn't mean that you never have uh, man, seasons of spiritual dryness. But there is a definitive moment that you go from, man, the, the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. From the people of this world to the people of God. You can't control the new birth or explain exactly how it happens, but you can't deny the effects in your life. Verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? So if you're confused, be encouraged. So is he. Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. So Nicodemus is always already confused. And then Jesus starts talking with plural pronouns. And you got to imagine Nicodemus is like, who are you talking to? You know, like, like steam is coming out of his ears at this point. Um, what's going on? Well, Jesus is referring to the cosmic we, okay? So he's referring to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And if you look at the context, you can, you can see that. He says, look, I'm the one who has ascended. No one has ascended into heaven, but I'm the one who has descended from heaven to earth in the incarnation to bring heavenly truth to the world. Okay, so, you know, at this point, Nicodemus has got steam coming out of his ears. He doesn't know what's going on, right? He's like... Pretty sure Jesus just committed blasphemy, but he's not sure. Um, and so here's what Jesus does. As a good teacher, he switches to another illustration. He's like, all right, let's talk Old Testament, Nicodemus. You're an expert in the Old Testament. Let's talk about a story that you know and that you love, okay? Verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So this is an allusion to Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. So if you want, you can go and read this maybe later this week with your missional community. And Numbers 21, 4 through 9 is a story of sin, judgment, and grace. Of sin, judgment, and grace. So it's a story of sin because the nation of Israel rejected God and rebelled against his authority. It's a story of judgment because in response to that, God sent poisonous snakes into their camp to bite the people and many died. But it's also a story of grace. After Moses interceded for the people, God provided a remedy. God told Moses to make a bronze serpent 
So the very thing that was killing the people, God said, I want you to make a bronze serpent and I want you to put it on a pole and I want you to raise it up into the air. And whoever looked by faith at the serpent was healed. Jesus is like, all right, you remember that story, Nicodemus? Nicodemus is like, yes. Then Jesus says, I'm the snake. I'm the snake. Just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up on the cross. You see, Jesus not only died for our sins, but Jesus became our sin. In the same way that the very thing that was killing the Israelites was lifted up on the pole, Jesus became sin and was lifted up on the cross in our place. In the camp of Israel, the solution to the serpent problem wasn't killing all the serpents. It wasn't making medicine. It wasn't passing anti-serpent laws. The answer was looking by faith at the serpent on the pole. And in a similar way, we have all been bitten by sin. And the wages of sin is death. The poison of sin is in our veins. Man, separating us from God and working its way into our relationships, our families, and our emotional, spiritual lives. But Jesus came and was lifted up on the cross so that anyone who looks upon him in faith can be healed. Jesus is saying, I am the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and I'm the serpent on the pole who is lifted up so that all who look upon me shall be saved. Friends, we are like the Israelites. We have all by nature and choice rejected God, men set ourselves up as God, and we deserve the just penalty for our actions. So how did God respond when we rebelled against him? Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. So John 3.16 is probably the most famous passage in the entire Bible, but I'm afraid that because it's so familiar to many of us that it's lost some of its power. What John 3.16 shows us is the depths of God's love for humanity. Now, here's what's interesting. Greek scholars will tell you that you can translate this in one of two ways. That word so is the crux. You could say God loved the world in this way that he gave up his one and only son. So if you ever ask the question, how do I know that God loves me? How has God proven his love for me? My life is hard. I'm suffering. My kids aren't doing well. Man, I can't catch a break financially. I'm going through a divorce. How do I know that God loves me? The answer would be that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loved us in this way that he sent Christ in our place. But what's interesting is you can also translate it as a multiplier. For God so loved the world. That means God didn't kind of love you. He didn't sort of love you. He didn't love you just enough to get you over the line, but he multiplied, he amplified, and he magnified his love towards you in Christ. And what commentators will tell you is probably looking at it from both directions gives you a better picture of the whole. That the way God proved his love for you is sending Christ. And the greatest revelation of how much God loves, for, loves you is in Christ. For God so loved the world. Friends, the possibility of the new birth, the possibility of entering the kingdom of God, of having eternal life in Jesus, came at immense cost to God the Father. Immense cost to God the Father. What manner of love the Father has lavished on us that we might be called children of God. 
I mean, think about how heart-wrenching it would be, man, to give up your child so that someone else could be saved. And God did that. He knew Jesus would be raised on the third day, but he still had to watch his son die. He still had to watch his son bear the penalty of the sins of the world. And he did that so that if you believe in him, you will not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life that begins now in your soul and which goes on forever with God. That is how much God loves you, that he was willing to give up his only son. Jesus could have come into the world as a judge. He could have come into the world to put down the rebellion of sin and to demonstrate and vindicate his glory. And if we're very honest with ourselves, that is what we would have done. If someone treated me the way that I have treated God, I would not come as a gracious, forgiving father. I would come as a vindictive judge. And you would do the same. And yet that's not what Jesus came to do. Jesus did not come to condemn. Instead, he came to save. But if we reject that act of love, there is no hope left for us. Sometimes people ask the question, man, aren't there many ways to God? And I would say, if there are many ways to God, then the cross was totally superfluous. If there are many ways for God, to God, then Jesus suffered for no purpose. Jesus asked in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Father, is there any other way? And the Father said, there's not. Man, the, the, the Lord God in his graciousness and his, and his kindness at immense cost to himself has provided a means for us to be reconciled to him. But if we reject that act of love, the scriptures say that we stand condemned. I like how one commentator put it. God has given his one and only son, allowing him to be lifted up for our salvation. To refuse to believe in him, to refuse to accept his words and to live by them is an affront to God himself. And whoever affronts God in this way stands condemned already. Salvation and condemnation eternally hang in the balance of this story, which begs the question, have you been born again? Do you see the kingdom of God and are you going to enter the kingdom of God? And you might be here and you might say, Joshua, I don't know. And as you look at your life, do you see the effects of the new birth? If you don't see the effects of the new birth, it's worth the question, man, how, how can I be born again? And this, this story tells us. You look on Christ and believe. Just like the Israelites looked at the serpent that was held up on the pole, you look at Christ held up on the cross and you believe. Now the word translated believe there is the Greek word pistuo. And it's not believe in the sense of like affirm general ideas and truths. It's, it should be translated something more like trust in, commit to, and depend upon. To believe in Jesus means I'm leaning the entirety of my life upon him. I'm giving my life into his hands. God loved, so God gave. And if you believe, you will receive eternal life. It's a good way to summarize John 3.16. That is the remarkably good news of Christianity. I told you, good news, bad news, incredibly good news. Which invites the question, if this is all true, Josh, if Jesus is the only way to God, if he's paid this immense cost, if God has lavished his love upon humanity, why don't more people look and live? Like we look around, it's like, Josh, if that's all true, I, it, I think if that was all true, then way more people would be looking and living and believing in him. So I have questions, Josh. Why aren't more people looking and living? And Jesus tells us the answer in verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. 
For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So to make a judgment means to evaluate the facts and then declare what is true. To evaluate the facts and declare what is true. So as the perfect judge who knows every human heart, Jesus tells us why more people don't look and live. He says it's not primarily because they have intellectual questions. It's not that they had a bad experience with the church. It's not that they believe in evolution. It's primarily because they love darkness. Uh, my friend is in the military, and he was having a conversation with another guy in his unit, uh, man, about the gospel. And this is, this is what his friend in his unit said. He said, if artificial intelligence were able to collect all data in the universe and then work it through all the algorithms and then put out that God existed, I still wouldn't believe it. You see, he, his friend didn't have an intellectual problem. His friend had a moral problem. His friend didn't want God to exist because his friend loved darkness. I heard a story of a campus minister who noticed that his students would start having doubts about the trustworthiness of the scriptures at the same time that they started sleeping around. And he noticed this over a couple of years, and so he actually changed his approach. So when he would meet with students over coffee or, or whatever, and they'd say, hey, I'm, I'm, having, I'm having doubts about the Bible or about my faith, he would graciously respond, who is it that you're sleeping with? <laughs> and he said about 80% of the time, they'd sort of sheepishly be like, oh, and then they'd tell him. You see, guys, we like to think that we're so intellectual and we have all these intellectual problems, but we're not. Fundamentally, we have moral problems. Jesus is saying the reason that we don't come into the light is not because God has not demonstrated the truthfulness of his claims. It's not that there's not sufficient evidence of the resurrection. It's not because you had a bad experience with a judgmental church, though that may be true. The reason that we don't come into the light is because we love sin. We'd rather be a boss in hell than a servant in heaven. Say, I want to do it my way, God, and I don't want to be born again, and I don't want to live according to your book, and I don't want to do what you said, and I don't want to go to church, and I don't want to serve, and I don't want to give because I want to be the center of my life. That is the essence of sin. I am in the middle. Jesus says, guys, let's be honest. The problem is not out there. The problem is in here. The reason that people don't come to Christ and they don't look and live is because they love the darkness. But friends, that doesn't have to be you. That doesn't have to be you because Jesus Christ came into the world as what? As the light of the world. He came into the world as the light of the world that we might see light and we might choose to move towards it instead of away. And this morning, you have heard the incredible news of the Bible that God loves you so much that he gave his one and only son that if you would believe in him, you will not perish, but you will receive eternal life. Man, the light has shone in your life. And it's an opportunity for you to respond. And so the main thrust, the main question of this text is simply this. Have you looked? Have you believed? Have you been born again. And I don't, I don't know all of you here, but I, I, I have a guess at what's happening inside of some of you right now. I think that right now you're probably wrestling. I think you're probably wrestling because it's, it's very, very humbling to admit that you need to be born again. And maybe you're wrestling because you've never thought of yourself as a born again type of person. That's sort of a tribe that you have in your mind and you're like, I'm not that tribe. 
Maybe you're wrestling with even me, and you're like, who does this young guy think he is getting up here and telling me these things? Man, you're wrestling because you know becoming a Christian means walking away from some things that you really like. That becoming a follower of Jesus will have an impact on your life, and hear me, it absolutely will. But friends, my prayer and my hope and what I think is happening in some of your lives is that the Spirit of God is working on you. And the Spirit of God is removing the scales from your eyes, and he's cleaning out your ears. So for the very first time, you're hearing John 3.16 as a personal invitation to you. That this is how the God of the universe feels about you. God loved you in this way, that he gave up his one and only son. God loved you to this degree that he gave up his one and only son. That if you would believe in him, you shall not perish but have everlasting life. If you bow your heads with me, I just want to give us a chance to respond and to the truth of this passage. I think I would be remiss to preach this text without inviting you to become a Christian. So if you need to be born again, if that's what you need to do today, what does that mean? What well, means to admit that I'm a sinner who needs a savior. I need to be born again. It means to believe that when Christ died on the cross, it counted for me to personally look and live. Jesus didn't just die for the sins of the world, he died for my sins. And it means to confess him as savior and Lord. God, I've tried it my way, but I'm turning the reins over to you. Friends, if you have never been born again, then I wanna encourage you to pray that to God in this moment. I wanna encourage and exhort you to make this the day that becomes your spiritual birthday. And if you have been born again, I wanna invite you to live like that's true. To keep looking to the cross because our tendency is to take our eyes off of Jesus and to put them on our performance. But friends, there's no hope there. Your salvation was not accomplished by you and your salvation is not sustained by you. So fix your eyes on the lavish love of God poured out for you on the cross and let that motivate you to walk faithfully with Christ. Lord God, thank you that you so loved me that you gave your one and only son. Thank you that you so loved every single person sitting here that you gave your one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall receive eternal life. God, I pray right now in this moment for the men and women who need to be born again, but are wrestling. God, I pray that you would overcome them with your grace. I pray for the men and women in this room who have been born again, but have not been living like that's true. They've fallen into the trap of the devil that says you are what you do and how you perform. God, I pray that you would banish that from their minds. And instead that they would know that you love them and that you are for them and that you've given them a new heart and that by your spirit, you are working in them. God, I pray that we would be a church that's profoundly shaped by this reality. Man, that we are a born again people, full of humility, full of hope, full of graciousness and full of power by your spirit. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your grace. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.